hey, if you are a kid ages four years old through fifth grade, you are excused to head out to South Creek Kids out this door right here. There's a parent who wants to walk with you. They are more than welcome to, but they do not need to. South Creek Kids is so, so, so much fun. I'm honestly kind of jealous of them. Man, it's in some ways I don't want to even have to speak now because I feel like Justin just gave us a good message and I feel like I'm going to have to talk and I'm not sure if it's going to be as good. So it's okay. This morning I want to I want to start by sitting down and not because I'm feeling tired. Uh, although allergies, seasonal allergies. Whew, I didn't used to get them, but, man, they've been kicking my butt. So Memorial Day, while we know the true reason why we celebrate, I also feel like for most people this is like that unofficial, like summer has begun, right? And once summer's began, uh, there's something that always happens, uh, which when I think about it is kind of funny. Uh, usually in the Midwest, the time of the year that it gets the hottest we decide what should we do at night. Let's have a fire, right? Like, have we ever thought about that? Like, I don't know if I, I was thinking about it this week. You know, the fall, it makes sense. We don't really do like campfires or bonfires a lot during the spring. We're probably not doing it in the winter, but it's like, I got this idea. It's 90 degrees out. Let's sit around a hot like circle, right? But we do it, right? It's just a normal thing. It's one of my favorite things. I have fond memories around campfires. Uh, what comes to mind uh, initially is uh, going to Warner Camp, which is the camp that I grew up going to uh, as a kid. I'd go during summer camp, and we'd even go there for, like, little weekend getaways. And we go to Mosquito Hill. I'm going to let you guess why they called it Mosquito Hill. Uh, it's not that hard to think of why. And we would build fires. And there's something about the fire in, in, in the way that, it, you know, I don't know about you guys. I could just stare at a fire for hours. But also there's something about a a fire that when you're sitting around a fire, you naturally begin to tell stories, right? And so the fish that you caught earlier that day went from being this big to this big, right? You start reminiscing. The dads begin to tell their kids that they used to be able to throw a football over a mountain, right? But there's something natural about stories and how... When we're sitting down around a fire, we begin to tell stories. And that's not new to us. There's something about it today that's beautiful because it's one of the only times that we aren't on these, right? We're oftentimes in places maybe where we don't get as good of service. We don't care. And there's something just beautiful about how stories begin to come out. There's been times where I've been sitting around a fire and there's a story that I didn't even remember happened that I can begin to tell. And I love that. This morning we're starting a new series called Campfire Stories. And the concept behind it is that there are so many good stories in Scripture, and in particular in the Old Testament, that many of us maybe don't know. Or maybe we forget to revisit, or because we find so much beauty and truth in the New Testament, in the story of Jesus in the early church, that we never make our way back into the Old Testament. And our hope through this series is to, in a similar way to how you start telling stories around a campfire, except for these ones are going to be true and not embellished, that that maybe these stories will begin to tell us more about our own lives. But more importantly, I believe that if we read the Old Testament, it helps point us to Jesus in the New Testament. 
that if that while there are some laws and there are some different things that are are maybe a little interesting in 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 our are only important for us for context there's so many good stories that point to God's faithfulness and his truth this morning i'm really excited because we're going to tell a story from the book of exodus and exodus is the second book uh of the Bible. It comes right after Genesis. And uh, this morning, I need a volunteer. Is Patrick Lewis still in here? Patrick, will you be my volunteer? Thank you so much for agreeing to doing this. This is crazy. So when I moved here, I was the youth pastor originally. And, uh, and then I got a demotion a couple years ago to senior pastor. And Patrick was one, of, was one of my youth. And he just graduated from college. Isn't that weird? Congratulations. So, Patrick, you're also one of the strongest guys I know. So uh, this is what I want you to do. So uh, I want to tell this story that has to do with a staff. And I'm not going to get to the point of where the staff really is just yet. But, Patrick, as long as you can, I want you to hold it up like this, okay? Can you do that for me? And you're just going to hang out here. I got only like an hour's worth of notes, so I'm thinking an hour and a half will be wrapped up. But for real, if you're cool with just standing there for a bit, that would be awesome. So in Exodus, here's what happens. God had had this covenantal relationship, this promised relationship with his people. And through a series of events, they were unfaithful. And eventually they forgot God and his goodness. And so when we begin the book of Exodus, we find that the Israelites have found themselves enslaved in Egypt. And it's been many years in a lot of ways since people have, have, have really remembered the goodness of God. And so God hears their cries, though, as they're crying out, crying out, saying, God, we need a deliverer. We need help. And so God uses a man named Moses to be a deliverer. Now, Moses is not the most intelligent. He has a quick temper. He's a murderer. Again, there's a lot of great things. Read, read the whole book of Exodus, and you'll find out more. But eventually, through some plagues in which there's a staff that is used many times as a symbol of God's power, of his favor, they're eventually let go from Egypt, from enslavement. But as they're on the run, there's this big story where there's this parting of the Red Seas. Maybe you've heard of this. Where again, the staff is at the forefront of the story. And Moses has the opportunity, through God's divine intervention, to lead the Israelite people, this enslaved people group. They're not even really a nation at this point. Out of enslavement, they cross the Red Sea. And they have freedom. And now, where we come to the story, they're having to wait as God is finding their, their, their promised land for them. And as they get out there, though, the people begin to grumble. At first, they say to Moses, Moses, when we were slaves in Egypt, we had all this food, and then you bring us out, and we're going to starve. And so God, in his goodness, he sends manna from heaven, which is this bread, and he sustains them exactly for what they need. I mean, are you kidding me? God is just so good in this. But it's not long afterwards where they're in the desert again and they're thirsty and they're beginning to grumble and say, God, they're beginning to say to Moses, why, why would God bring us out here just to die of thirst? Why would he do this? And so God again provides, and this time with the staff, Moses is instructed to strike a rock and water comes. And God's goodness is shown again. He is faithful yet again. But at this point in the story, 
you still have to think these people have been in slavery for a long time. They've been doing hard manual labor. They are just tired, and they are nomads at this point. And as they are, are, are continuing to move, there is an ambush. And the story that we're reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter uh, 17, uh, verses 8 uh, through 16. And if you want to make notes, if you want to go back and read it, you can read it later. But I want to tell a little bit more of the story. Um, Because while I believe it's incredibly important to dive into the Scripture itself, there's something powerful, powerful sometimes about telling stories. Because whether you know it or not, uh, our Bible comes from an oral tradition. Uh, it's not like, you know, way, way back in the day, as soon as Moses got done, you know, they, they published this book and they could read about this. For years, people would continue to tell these stories and they would pass it down generation after generation. So in some ways, while even though it's important to read the text, sometimes to hear it come alive is more of a natural state of what some of the people originally would have heard. And so at this point, you have to realize in in, in Deuteronomy, it gives us a little bit more about this idea that they were ambushed, and in particular from behind at their weakest points, where they would have had their widows, they would have had their orphans, they would have had the weakest. And they're ambushed by this group called the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites is really interesting, because to read Genesis, when you read through all these different genealogies, you, you have to realize that, again, everyone at one point was family. And so the Amalekites come from the descendants of Esau. In Genesis, there's this story of Jacob and Esau. They're these two brothers. And there becomes this huge feud because Jacob steals this birthright from Esau. And so forever, there's this this internal conflict between these two brothers and their families. It's kind of like the Hatfields and McCoys, but in the Middle East. And so these Amalekites, we don't know exactly why for sure they decided to attack, but they attack. And you have to imagine, the Israelite people at this point, they've never fought in battle. Like, they're not an army. They're this ragtag group of people who used to be slaves, who are wandering, who has had deep favor from God. But they're just wandering, and they don't know what's about to happen. And so as they see this ambush coming, and as this begins to happen, Moses grabs Joshua. This is the first time that a man named Joshua comes on the scene in Scripture. Joshua, spoiler alert, will eventually become the leader of the Israelite people. And so Moses, who's an older man at this point, he tells Joshua, who's this young man, he says, grab the the able-bodied men that you can find, grab the weapons, and you are going to go out and you are going to fight the Amalekites. And Moses, feeling prompted by God goes up on top of a mountainside. And up where he's at this hill, he takes his staff and he holds it up into the air. And and, and Scripture doesn't indicate for sure, but I like to think that probably God gave him this idea that, listen, the staff is important and give yourself a beautiful posture. And that as long as Moses held the staff above his head, the Israelites were winning the battle. But whenever he lowered it down, the Amalekites were winning. Now it gets to this point where he begins to get tired. It talks about how they eventually put a rock. I don't have a big rock to give you. They put a rock up there. Are your arms getting tired at all? A little bit? It's all good. Look at these. And then eventually there are two people, Aaron and Hur. Aaron would have been, uh, was, was Moses' brother. Hur, many scholars believe, was his brother-in-law. And eventually, I'm not going to grab anyone else, but eventually they came up here to help sort of bear the weight 
so that after a while, Moses could rest without really having to let it go. And guess what? The Israelites had victory because Moses was faithful and he kept his arms up. I'll let you go now, I guess, Patrick, if you want. Thank you so much. Give a hand for Patrick. That was good. But here's where the story kind of gets gets interesting in, in the place that I in particular want us to be looking at this morning. You see, we're going to unpack a little bit why this is important. We're going to unpack some of the, the pieces of this. But here's what the last bit of uh, this story says. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of the Amalekites from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because my hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord and the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. All right. Let's talk a little bit about this. Let, 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 let's clear up kind of an elephant in the room that whenever I read this text, it's always a little awkward. So God wants us to completely blot out a, a name of a people group. Um, you know, when we read Scripture, in a particular the Old Testament, I think we have to, have to do it in the context of the time. We have to do it in the context of, of the reality that I also do believe that while it is deeply and divinely inspired, that it's still written from the perspective of people. You know, David, man after God's own heart, you know, he talks about, you know, the idea of his enemies just being crushed and persecuted. And yet when we read in the New Testament, we read about Jesus, he's the one who also talks about, you know, love your enemy. Bless those who persecute you. How do we reconcile these things? Some of these I think we have to take into account of, uh, of, of some historical uh, perspective. But also here, here, here's a perspective I've taken. I've wondered if there's, because these are two families that are broken, and as our guest speaker last week, Kevin, talked about this idea that the, the good news of Jesus Christ is all about restored relationship. I wonder if part of the idea of blotting out these names, of wiping out this people group, isn't so much about death and destruction of a group of people, but maybe it's the death and destruction of an ideal, of people who were against God, who were against uh, uh, what he stood for, and who brought about evil. When I think about the, the Nazis, I don't wish ill on those who, who, who did those crimes, even though they are, that was awful, and they deserve that. I, I, I know that in the same right, those who tortured people, they're no different than you and I. They're sinners deeply in need of a Savior. But I do believe that the injustice, the ideals of a people group, were deeply needing to be wiped out. You know, you've seen there's stories about people who once were part of, of the Nazi regime who've had an encounter with Christ. I mean, think about Paul. Paul becomes like the greatest missionary, arguably there was, aside, of, aside from Jesus. And the man persecuted Jews. I mean, he was a terrible dude. He killed people. So that's the first thing I just wanted to, to, to maybe come out of here. But here's why, why, why I wanted to talk about this story this morning, why I think in particular it's deeply important. It's interesting that God told Moses, this is the first time in Scripture we find, that God tells his people to write something down. 
Again, before this, it's all just this oral tradition. But we're told, write this down. And in particular, he wants Joshua to see it. He wants Joshua to see it. So here's the question. Why does it matter that Joshua sees it? I think it's important that Joshua sees it because otherwise Joshua could have thought that he won the battle, right? I mean, think about it. How often have you been in a huge mess in your own life? There's a war going on in your life, and you pray to God, God, help me. And then when he does, you sort of are, are like, yes, got that myself. How many of you would be willing to admit, I'll be the first one to admit, that there have been moments in your life where God has helped you in a mighty way. In a lot of ways, you forget. You take the credit. I'll be honest, there's been days where, where I'll leave on a Sunday morning, I'll feel like, I preached a pretty good sermon. I'm, I'm pretty good. That's, that's, that's awful. What a terrible human. We forget sometimes. And so I believe that this was the beginning of God's knowing. I mean, he, he knows our every inmost thought. He created us in his image. But he knew that there's something about us that if we don't remember his faithfulness, we are going to forget and continue to be unfaithful. So he tells him to write this down. So here, here's three things that I, I think that we learn from this story in particular. Here's the first thing. I, I believe that we were not created to face life alone. We were not created to face life alone. Moses realized very quickly that there is no way that on their own that they could win a, a victory. He knew without the help of God... They were dead. Just plain and simple. They were tired. They were worn down. They had no military background. So he knew that he needed the Lord. You know, Jesus talks about this idea of, Come to me all who are are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I mean, you think about it, it's it's quite interesting. When he talks about his yoke, he's talking about uh, this thing that they would put on cattle. And it's interesting because as I was studying this week, I was thinking about imagining this. In many ways, the staff is sort of like a yoke. The staff throughout the story in in Exodus, it's guiding. It is helping them. You know, when Jesus talks about that his his yoke uh, is, is, is good for people, he's talking about the fact that it helps keep them in line. You know, the yoke is put on there for like an oxen so it knows how to, what direction to go. And the way that it's fit is so that way it's bearable, it's doable. You know, I believe when, when God told Moses too, not that, 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 that he would give him victory, I think he also knew that he was going to need help. He was going to need a Joshua and other men to be fighting down below. But he was also going to need an Aaron and a Hur. I mean, think about it. We, on, on our own, cannot hold this up forever. I mean, Patrick is super strong, but there's no way that Patrick could continue to hold this up by himself for hours upon hours. And, you know, Scripture doesn't tell us how long uh, how long the, uh, the battle was. I, I imagine it was quite long. But I think it's a great representation for the church that we were not meant to try to bear burdens on our own. That without holding on to the promises of God, I mean, think about it. 
This staff would have represented God's favor. It would have represented God's provision. And so without holding on to that, with all that you have, you're dead. You're in huge trouble. But again, if we're, if we're asked to just hold it up in praise, hold it up trusting God, there's no way we can do it. My friends, guess what? Even the most disciplined people, even the most faithful people that you know, there is no way that they can walk through this journey of life on their own. Not only just, even if they're just trying to depend on a relationship with Jesus themselves, they need others to come around them. They need others when they're becoming weak, when relationship is rocky, when finances are in trouble, when, when children have wandered astray, that we are not strong enough to do it on our own. And so we see this early piece of the church, that my friends, you need errands and you need hers in your life. And if you don't have them, it doesn't matter how much you're seeking God on your own. God did not create us to do life on our own. Think about Jesus. He could have saved the world on his own. He could have, he could have spread his good news all on his own. He could have tried to gather all the people around and just say it. But what was his idea for how he was going to advance his kingdom and share his good news? He took 12 people, broken, misfits, not the perfect people, and he used them, he, he entered into a relationship, and he used them to be sent out. Friends, we need others in our lives who build us up, who tell us not to give up, who remind us of God's faithfulness. So at the end of the story, we find that, that Moses, it says, built an altar, and he called it, The Lord is my banner. What's a banner? A banner in ancient culture would have been something that people would have carried into battle. Maybe you've seen uh, in, 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 in like a Roman movie where maybe they're holding up a golden eagle. It's even honestly like a flag. It would have been something that represented that people could unite around a symbol. And so when Moses builds this altar and he, he says that the Lord is my, my banner, Yahweh is my banner, what he was beginning to say is he was beginning to unite a people group that before had, had no real identity, had nothing to rally around because in many ways all they could, could remember was being uh, enslaved people. All they could remember is being the, this, this people who were oppressed. And, and even though they had just seen God do amazing things, this is the moment where, where Moses begins to say, we are a people. And so when he says, the Lord is my banner, he is essentially saying he wanted the generations to come to remember that any battle they go into, real battle or the battles that we don't see, that we carry the banner of the Lord. Later on, we know that it's the cross. The cross is what we carry into every battle. Because whether you like it or not, every day we wake up, we face a new battle. There's new temptation. There's new injustice that has happened in our world. And when we walk into battle trying to do it on our own, when we don't walk in with the banner of the Lord the favor of the Lord. We're in trouble. We don't stand a chance. My friends, here's the second thing I think we learn 
from this. That our posture matters. Our posture matters. Think about, think about how Moses looked. If you were going into battle, would you want to go in like this? This isn't a trick question. No. This is a very vulnerable posture. If you're going into a battle, it would be so easy for someone to hit you. But if you think about it, it's this beautiful posture of vulnerability. It's clinging on to the promises of God, of His presence, and not letting it go, saying that I trust in just holding on to God. And I don't have to fight these battles because the battle belongs to the Lord. But you know what else I think it it reminds me of? Reminds me of my son. When my son is scared, he's two. When my son, when we're on a walk and he hears a loud, big dog dog, as he would call it, he goes, Daddy, Daddy, his arms are reaching for me. You know, it's no surprise that throughout Scripture, God is referred to as as Abba, Papa, Father. That there's something about, even in our biggest, darkest moments, where we are afraid and we don't know where we're going to go, we still have the opportunity to just call out for our Papa. To say, save me. My dad, when we would go to Warner Camp, he used to tell us ghost stories, of course, because he's a great dad, around the campfire. And then he'd want to see if we'd want to go for walks in the woods. And inevitably, almost every time, what would end up happening, I didn't know this till later on, is he would put like pine cones and things like that in, in his pockets. And as we were walking, he'd sometimes get us to walk a little bit farther ahead and he'd throw stuff. And of course, we'd freak out, right? You can tuck that into the back of your head. Most of your kids are out of here, so you can use it on them later. But always, when I was afraid and when it was dark, I always knew if I put my hands up and I said, Dad, who's going to pick me up? Everything was going to be okay. I'd be fine. My friends, here's a question for us. What's your posture when life is difficult? When God has thrown a curveball into your life, are you trying to figure out and do everything on your own? Or have you been willing to give a humble, vulnerable posture like a child who says, Daddy, Father, I don't know what to do, but I trust you. I cling on to your promises, and I just put up my arms. I'm not going to try to do anything on my own. I'm not going to try to fight this battle on my own, because I know I cannot do it. So friends, what's your posture? What's your posture? Mark chapter 10, verse 45, I think, gives a great, great look into the posture of Jesus. It says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. I love this idea because I think it reminds us that we can never get to a place where we don't have to serve the Lord. And sometimes serving the Lord is trusting Him. 
Sometimes serving the Lord is, is doing the, the thing we don't want to do. I don't know about you guys, but when life hits, I don't want to turn to Jesus. Can I just be really honest? My natural, my natural state is I want to try to fix it. I want to just deal with it on my own, the way that I want to do it on my own. And sometimes the routes that Jesus takes me are incredibly humbling. And you know what? Sometimes I just don't want to be humbled. But it comes back to what's our posture? Our posture matters so much. When we're like this, we have the opportunity to receive. When we're trying to do things on our own, we can't get anything. What's our posture? Here's the last point this morning. I believe we must do things that help us remember God's faithfulness. We did something this morning, and this is the big tie-in that pushes us to the New Testament in Jesus. In Luke chapter 22, 19 through 20, it just says this. It says, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. I just deeply believe that on my own accord, without people in my life, without practices like communion, I am so forgetful. I'm so quick to forget God's goodness. I'm so quick to forget how He took care of me the last time. I'm so quick to forget how much I just desperately need Him, like the air I breathe, like the water I drink. And so I believe if we do not put practices in our lives, if we don't have events in our lives that point our children and our grandchildren, but more importantly ourselves, to the faithfulness of God, to the sacrifice of Jesus, we're going to forget. My friends, here's, here's the big piece I don't want you to forget this morning. I don't want you to miss it. If you miss anything else, don't miss this. Is that remembering God's faithfulness helps us deal with our unknown faithfulness. Because whether we want to admit it or not, we're all unfaithful. We all forget. We all sin still. We all do what's wrong. We have attitudes. We have perceptions of people. We say mean words. We don't help out when justice is, is due. But when we remember Jesus begins to help cure our unfaithfulness. It begins to make us more like Him. This morning, I don't know where all of you guys are at. Maybe some of you are saying, Aaron, I got it. Like, shut up. We get it. Like, don't forget them. It's not that hard. But maybe some of us are, are wanting to be honest and say, my posture has been more like this. My posture has been wanting to just fight the battle. Myself. And this morning... I would call you in the name of Jesus that if you have your sword picked up ready for battle that maybe time now is the time to just drop it and to pick up the staff and just raise it above your head and just say God I'm clinging to your promises I'm clinging to you to be my deliverer I'm clinging to you to provide for me and then maybe you need to have the courage the humility to call around your Aaron and your her 
to lift you up. Because you cannot do it on your own. I'm going to ask that you guys stand this morning, and we're going to sing one more song in response. But as they're coming and as they're getting ready, I just want to pray for us. So let's pray. God, I just thank you so much for, God, your faithfulness. God, I know every single day, God, I'm unfaithful. God, I sometimes feel like it can take milliseconds after you have been so faithful. You have been so good for me to forget. But God, as Justin said earlier, every single day, despite my unfaithfulness, despite the times that I mess up, God, you still choose to love me. God, not a perfected state of me, but God, the broken little boy. God, the one who wants to fight their own battles, but also the one who gets afraid. So God, this morning, God, I just raise my arms to you. And God, I just give my posture saying, God, I just need you so deeply. God, there are battles in my life right now that, God, I'm tired and I'm weary. And I know without you, God, I'm dead. God, I pray that there may be some this morning, God, who are feeling that way as well. God, maybe they've never had relationship with you, or God, maybe they have wandered away. God, I pray this morning that, God, they would raise their arms with just a posture saying, Papa, I need you, I trust you. And that they would know that you are faithful and good, that your mercies, that your grace is unending. And God, they would experience that this morning. God, maybe they would enter into a relationship with you for the very first time. God, maybe some of us this morning are recognizing that, God, there are some people in our lives who are struggling. God, maybe they're trying to raise up their arms. But we can see that they're getting tired and weary. Maybe they're friends. Maybe they're a spouse. Maybe they're children. And God, this morning, you are calling us to be their Aaron. You're calling us to be their her. God, would we have the courage to run and to support them in whatever way you call us to. God, this morning, just most of all, God, would we not forget Jesus? Because God, if we miss Jesus, we miss everything. God, we love you, and we just thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name I pray.